Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, on a letter all the premiers signed and sent to the federal party leaders, and they want answers to specific questions affecting everybody in Canada. I spoke with Dr. Walden de Polson. She's the medical director of littlewarriors.ca about child sexual exploitation. John Zogby, who's one of the leading pollsters in the United States and op-ed writer, talked to us about illegals being removed from the U.S. by ICE and Dr. Stanley Corrin, who is one of the world's foremost dog experts as well as a human psychologist at UBC, had something to answer that meant something to me personally. Have a listen. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Premier, thank you very much for the time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. Were there significant different agendas that were spoken to and very spoken to uh, directly and very quickly during the Premier's meetings? Oh, yeah, for certain. There's, there's, there's points of disagreement across this nation, which I think uh, expresses the diversity uh, that we have. But uh, you know, I, I would just say this. Um, people across uh, this great nation of Canada can be proud of the 13 Premiers uh, that brought forward issues on their behalf, uh, respective to their region, uh, to that table. And there is a real willingness at that particular table uh, to work through the the pieces that we do have control of, uh, where we struggle to find some some place of common policy, if you will, is uh, some of the areas where actually the federal government uh, has the has the jurisdiction, even in places where they don't, but they think they do. Uh, that's where we really start to have a lack of direction, if you will. Um, but with respect to the uh, the um, you know the conversation around that table and the willingness to work towards a solution by the 13 premiers across this nation, Canadians can be very proud. I'll come back to that question in a different way in a minute. But uh, when when you mm-hmm. talk about uh, cooperative um, ventures and provinces agreeing with one another, and the federal government is the stick in the mud, as it were. It was very interesting to hear Premier Legault hear a quote uh, and a clip from Premier Legault saying that the province of Quebec is going to side with Saskatchewan when uh, the carbon tax issue from your province goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. Well, that's right. There's seven of ten uh, provincial provinces uh, now, uh, not not the uh, territorial province, but seven of the ten provincial pr- provinces are now uh, uh, siding, uh, uh, you know, on against the federal government, if you will. There's one more that is siding with the federal government. So eight of the provincial provincial uh, provinces are actually in, uh, in this conversation that will be heading to the Supreme Court here at the end of the year. And Quebec is a, uh, you know, very concerned. I, I think, in fairness, and I would let Premier Legault speak for himself. But as our, but very the concern uh, from ourselves and the other provinces is that if the federal government is able to overstep their bounds into what we perceive as provincial jurisdiction on this topic, 
um, what would be stopping them from doing it in other areas, uh, such as education, such as health care? Um, good fences make good neighbours, and we need to re-establish uh, where this particular fence is between uh, federal and provincial jurisdiction. I've always thought it was good and tall fences. <laughs> Just a joke. And well-kept. <laughs> and well-kept. Let me come back to the original question about the conversations that were taking place at the table, because there were, and still remain, contentious issues between the provinces. And you and I talked early in 2018 about the situation with the TMX, British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. How is that um, situation working itself through now with the federal government promising that TMX is going to be built? How's the conversation going between you, Premier Horgan, and Premier Kenny? So, so the, the conversation with respect to pipelines, um, you know, let, let's play them out side by side. First, we have the TMX uh, proposal that uh, there is a proposal that we own it now as Canadians. Um, it, it is, you know, finding its way through the courts as uh, British Columbia has and other groups have taken that uh, to the courts. Uh, the, the federal government ultimately has a decision on the approval of, of that pipeline and all pipelines uh, in this nation. As per the Constitution, it's clearly federal uh, jurisdiction, just like it is to put a railway across uh, this great country. Um, that was cited unilaterally uh, with the federal government in the provincial courts in British Columbia, and we expect a similar decision uh, when that goes uh, to the Supreme Court. So the courts are being tested with respect to jurisdiction, and they're proving that the federal government does have, as we have always said, the, the, juris- the jurisdiction here. The same would hold true if there was a proponent to put in Energy East or an energy corridor north and south in this nation. Uh, the federal government would ultimately have uh, the the final uh, decision with respect uh, with respect to that. So the provinces are able to you know weigh in from time to time as BC is as Quebec I think would choose to if there's a proponent. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's a federal decision, and this is where the challenge comes. We have a federal government that is changing the goalposts with the introduction of Bill C-69 and chasing away uh, that, uh, you know, interested investors, investors that are more than interested, like TransCanada, that had, you know, close to about a billion dollars invested in that Energy East project. And uh, so we, our, our, our quarrel is actually with the, the regulator in this case, which is the federal government, which is changing the rules as we go along. The uh, the original letter that was signed by six uh, premiers and sent to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau some weeks ago uh, questioned C-69 and C-48 and uh, pointed out that in its then form, it raised the issue of national unity. Um, the Prime Minister, and I, I'd like to talk to you about the letter that you, uh, as Premier, sent to the federal party leaders in a, in a minute. But... Uh, the Prime Minister has responded in several venues at several times, and he says there are no national unity issues in Canada, and he points to the premiers as being the cause of the problem. You say what? These are his policies. You know, in no, in, under a circumstance of no national uh, unity uh, challenges, we wouldn't have uh, seven provinces uh, that is taking the federal government to legal action, uh, in, in taking the federal government to court uh, with legal action, uh, trying to clarify uh, where exactly that fence is between provincial and and federal jurisdiction. You wouldn't have nine of ten provinces that are intervening uh, with the Senate on Bill C-69 as they don't agree with that bill in its purest form. You wouldn't have the Western uh, Canadian energy industry, and we're part of this in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and, and Manitoba, 
uh, very concerned about an arbitrary tanker ban on the west coast, Bill C-48, um, and you see the three territorial leaders now very concerned that they may be they may uh, be facing something similar, uh, an arbitrary tanker ban in areas of, of our northern parts of our nation. Uh, Premier uh, Premier McLeod from from uh, Northwest Territories has uh, has repeatedly uh, talked about the arbitrary. Uh, uh, drilling moratorium that was put on in the Beaufort uh, in the Beaufort Sea that is affecting the economy in Northwest Territories. Um, there most certainly, there most certainly is divisiveness in what is happening at the federal level in this nation as you see provinces and territories uh, joining forces at times, uh, but most certainly uh, wondering why we have a federal government that is moving forward with these arbitrary decisions that seem uh, political, driven by political ideology at the very best, and uh, have no no formation, uh, no have no. Uh, uh, have, have not come about by any degree of consultation, most certainly, uh, with the provinces and, and many times not even with the industries that they affect. You know, Premier, when I look at C-69 and C-48 and what has happened since those pieces of legislation were introduced, if we just look at the timeline, it's almost uh, it's almost impossible to understand how the Prime Minister cannot see how those two pieces of legislation that add the, the arbitrary carbon tax to it uh, I, I don't understand how we can't see this. These are three major issues of uh, division uh, within within our within our national federation, and they're they're his babies. But he's not willing to to accept that. It appears. Well, he should he should he should, he should stand up and take responsibility for these uh, for these policy initiatives uh, that he has put forward. Uh, you know, listen. You you add to this. Uh, you know, other accumulative effects, if you will, uh, affecting uh, the economies in in certain areas uh, of our nation. Um, you have the irregular or illegal border crossers that have been occurring predominantly in Quebec and, and Ontario, but began, if we remember, in in Manitoba as well. And the costs of 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 that. Uh, improper policy, if you will, being uh, being enforced by the federal government. Those costs were borne by the provinces. Those have not been uh, reimbursed uh, by the federal government. You look at, in addition to those policies you put forward, uh, you, the carbon taxation policy, uh, the the, uh, the Bill C-69, Bill C-48, arbitrary tanker bans, or drilling moratoriums in the north. You add to that, you know, now coming clean fuel standard, 50 different regulations as the as the federal uh, environment uh, par- parliamentary secretary to the minister of environment has has indicated uh, coming in in the uh, the climate world if you will uh, i just am not certain that that our industries that are creating wealth across this nation are going to be able to withstand um, that type of that type of uh, change without uh, with a history of an unproven consultation record with industries with provincial leaders with provincial governments this is uh, most certainly you know a challenging time for our nation and i would say this i am very thankful that we have the the 13 provincial leaders that were able to join here in Saskatoon this past week, work through the issues uh, that we have control of uh, with respect to internal trade, and we made some great strides there with respect to delivery of health care, mental health and addictions, and we're moving forward on a symposium to share best practices with respect to that. Um, we've seen Alberta already remove some of their internal uh, uh, trade exceptions uh, that, uh, that we allowed for over the course of this last week. Very proud to sit with those 13 leaders um, and looking forward to the answer to the question that we ha- questions that we have asked of the federal leaders heading into the next election so that we can share them with our respective constituents which represent all of the nation. Premier Mo, I, I don't want to break this down into point by point by point on the letter. So I'll just ask you to please share with us what the what the fundamental parts are of the letter and what you're asking the federal party leaders to do. 
Well, there are a number of specific questions uh, within the letter, and without going into detail uh, with respect to that, essentially uh, what the letter is is a, is a breakdown of the answers to, to these questions should provide uh, Canadians with a, a very good view of, of each of the federal leaders, and we sent it to all of the federal leaders, uh, but a very good view of, of, of where they stand with respect to generating wealth, uh, expanding the, the wealth in our communities, expanding the wealth of our economy, the opportunities that we have in this generation and the next generation, and then how do we actually uh, distribute that wealth uh, into the services that Canadians expect, understanding uh, that we have um, we have uh, fiscal transfers across this nation. Um, the most talked about recently has been obviously equalization. Uh, but without, I, I think the, the answers to these questions will provide Canadians with the opportunity to understand that if we are not actually going to generate uh, that wealth and provide that opportunity to keep increasing our the, the value of uh, the products that we are selling all around the world, we aren't going to have the ability to share that wealth as Canadians. Um, ultimately, that is the, the overarching view of the letter. Um, there are a number of different questions where we'll be looking for answers that will be provided by by all of the respective party leaders and hopefully our true hope is that this this the answers to these questions are going to help provide clarity um, on the differences between uh, our, our parties and our leaders uh, heading into this fall's federal election. When I look at the letter, and I'll just give the, uh, the headings here, economic competitiveness, jobs and skills training, these are the questions that you're asking the party leaders or questions you're putting to them, the question of immigration, health care, sustainability and innovation, climate change, strengthening Canada's position in the Arctic, advancing reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, and Canadian federalism. So I'm looking at this list, Premier, and it's July 2019. And I, I, f- I find it disturbing that we have to, uh, and I agree with you, the letter has to be sent. At this fundamental level, ask these, these, these party leaders to deal with these particular issues uh, going into the election campaign. We should, they should all have in place um, programs and objectives and, and have explained to us by now, and we should know just by watching what's going on, what, what's, what's happening in the country. I, just, I know the letter's important. I find it disturbing that it has to be sent. It absolutely is is an important letter, and you know here we have we have an auto industry in in Quebec, manufacturing industry in both Quebec and uh, Ontario. Pardon me, uh, we've seen some challenges uh, recently uh, due to uh, you know a policy um, uh, conversation that we're having between the U.S. and 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 Canada in the Buy American policy that's affecting uh, many many jobs of of families that Premier Legault and Premier Ford. Uh, uh, both uh, represent in their respective areas. Uh, the, these are precisely the 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 effort, the work that needs to happen at the federal government to uh, uh, you know allow that opportunity for those jobs not only to be retained, but for those jo- for those industries to actually increase the people that they're employing. The conversation is very similar with our our energy industry in in Western Canada, and when you look at the current bills that are that are before the the house have actually been passed by the house and thankfully my faith in the senate has been renewed over the course of the past number of months as they seem to be the entity that actually did some degree of consultation on on bill c69 particularly um 
but we want to enhance that industry because it's one of the most sustainable in the world. We want to provide that product to the rest of the nation. And we see a federal government that is moving forward with initiatives like Bill C-69, Bill C-48 that are, that are hindering uh, that opportunity, hindering us to continue to create wealth and, tra- and, and share it with, uh, with other Canadians. Uh, that just isn't going to you know, square the circle uh, with respect to how this, how this letter, uh, the answers to this letter come out. And, and we'll most certainly be displaying those answers to all the Canadians. And I hope it provides some clarity on just what, we're, what we have done successfully for the last you know, few centuries here in this nation and what we need to do over the course of the next number of decades in order for us to continue to be successful. Because if we continue on the path we are, uh, we have a nation that just isn't functioning on all cylinders right now and it's going to raise some very serious questions uh, come next year. Premier Mo, thank you very much for the time. Also looking forward to the answers that you've received from the uh, party leaders, one particularly. Have a great rest of the Sunday, Premier. Yeah, you have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you. Scott Mo, the Premier of Saskatchewan joining us on the uh, Chorus Radio Network. So again, the, the headings of the questions that are being placed to the, uh, asked of the federal party leaders, economic competitiveness, jobs and skill training, immigration, uh, healthcare sustainability and innovation, climate change, strengthening Canada's position in the Arctic, advancing reconciliation with indigenous peoples, and question about Canadian federalism. Some years ago in this very studio, I had the uh, Ontario Provincial Police Officer who was in charge of Project P, the anti-pornography unit in the OPP, in the studio. We were talking about this very issue because it was in the news at that time as well. And he brought in some pornographic magazines, child porn, which you'd be arrested, and rightly so, for owning if you had it. But he wanted me to see what was out there. And I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I looked at two pages and I said, just take it away, please. I can't for the life of me understand how people will actually seek it out. Anyway, there are child sexual abuse is absolutely a, a horrific reality. There's an organization known as NAMBLA. We talked about them over the years, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. And I was put on their uh, most hated list, which I thought was a bit of a, a coup because uh, they didn't like the fact that we were constantly, at that time, going after them because they truly believe that they have the right to do what they're doing. And, and it's frightening when you start to find out who's actually involved with that group. It's very alarming. Dr. Wanda Polson is the clinical director of Little Warriors. And Little Warriors is a national charitable organization based in Edmonton, which is dedicated to the awareness, prevention of, and treatment of child sexual abuse. And she joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Polson, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having us and for bringing this issue to the forefront for discussion. You know, Epstein has provided the opportunity for us to talk about it within a news context. But it was I was thinking about this over the last few days. We should not just wait for a news event to address this issue because it is, it's go- ongoing constantly and victims are created on a daily basis. And you see that, don't you? 
Absolutely. The stats are um, profoundly saddening. We know that about one in three to four girls under the age of 18 has been sexually abused in some way in their lifetime, and about one in six boys under the age of 18. Have been sexually abused? Yes. How do we define sexual abuse? Well, sexual abuse, um, of course, there is a range, but it's um, sexual abuse, the way that we define it, is um, bringing any sexuality to a child under the age of 18 um, in the form of, as you mentioned, pornographic material, um, touch. Um, It can be having them listen or be exposed to sexual content that they're not prepared for, don't understand, and can't give consent for. So it can be a a wide range of of various um, activities. And all children are vulnerable, no? Absolutely, children are vulnerable. And what we know is that actually about 95% of sexual abuse altogether is not actually reported. So the stats that we have um, are, are probably at the minimal end of the reporting data. At what point do you become engaged with, involved with and the, 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 the treatment and the, the assistance with kids who have found themselves abused sexually? What, and and, and, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you begin? Yeah, I, I mean, we, um, we treat children age 8 to 12, and we've just opened up a treatment center for um, adolescent girls 13 to 17 years old. And so we become involved after they have been identified as having been sexually abused. So many of the children and adolescents who come to us have gone through the court systems or have to have uh, made statements to RCMP or other um, police services across Canada. So they come to us to receive treatment, and oftentimes um, they have received treatment other um, areas or in the community that hasn't been, um, you know, as helpful as they might have liked because they're still suffering from Um, mental health, um, addiction issues, and other family-related crises. You mentioned family, and that makes me think of something that we've uh, talked about in the past on this issue, and it has to do with who the abusers are. Quite often, I don't know if it's the majority of cases you would know, but quite often, at the very least, it is family, no? Absolutely. Um, What's interesting is I think there's one of the biggest myths about child and adolescent sexual abuse is that it's about a stranger that has has, um, sexually abused them. But what the research and literature tells us is approximately 95% of children who have been sexually abused have been abused by someone who is well known to them, a family member or someone, an adult um, or other family member who um, should be in a a place of protection and loving them. Uh, Dr. Polson, one of the things that I remember from conversations on air and in studio with uh, with survivors of child sexual abuse, I'm talking now about adults, maybe in the 30s or 40s or older, who remember very clearly what happened to them as children, are still living with the fallout of that. And they said, we tried to tell. We, we tried to inform, maybe even told a parent that the other parent 
or an uncle or someone close to the family was involving this, the child in sexual activity, and they weren't believed. Right. How much of an issue is that? Is that still a, a major issue? Are, are kids who, who, you know, if, you never know, kids listening now, uh, know that they're in that sort of situation, have maybe tried to tell somebody, but nobody's listening to them? Absolutely. I think um, what we hear oftentimes is that children have to go to several people before they're actually heard and listened and believed. And um, from a clinical perspective, what we absolutely know is that the likelihood that a child is fibbing or telling a lie about it is very, very unlikely. So if nothing else, when a child is bringing forward any kind of disclosure, they should absolutely be believed. And there are physical signs, are there not? And there certainly is, from what I recall, and I've been looking at some uh, some additional information over the last couple of days, knowing that you, you and I would be speaking, there are, there are behavioral aspects to it. The, the child's behavior changes. Yeah, more than likely the child's behavior um, will definitely change. It can change from, you know, having... Um, an increased sexual language, for example, troubles falling asleep, um, not wanting to be with a person that they previously enjoyed being with. Um, they may be drawing pictures that that have sexual content, um, being more withdrawn or anxious in certain situations. Cause, so there there can be a lot of different um, signs and symptoms. Not not necessarily do those symptoms mean, of course, that they have been sexually abused. But when you start seeing them cluster um, any adult um, in a caregiving role should just be asking questions about those behavior changes to get more information. And listen to them. Yes. Listen to them. Uh, what do you do at Little Warriors specifically if uh, you know a child comes to you or is brought to you? How do the children come to you? Um, what's really great about our Be Brave Ranch is that children come to us. Um, as you actually mentioned, we're seeing more and more children finding us online themselves and adolescents and then talking with an adult, um, a parent or guardian about uh, wanting to come. So it, it's interesting. I've never actually been able to work in an amazing place where children are actually referring themselves. Um, otherwise, you know, families can put forward um, applications uh, as well as other professionals. And the amazing thing about our, our services is that what we offer is free of charge. It's um, our our organization has been um, funded by volunteers and gracious donors that um, continue to um, support children and adolescents who have been abused. I know you do a lot of great work, um, and we um, we had a conversation with your founder some some time ago on this on this program, and uh, you can never let go of of the issue. You know what I find really stunning as I look at this uh, Jeffrey Epstein story. This mm -hmm. guy, this this he was just totally unconcerned. It appears with what he was doing. He had you know they had the name the plane the Lita Express. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the people who live close to the island that he bought, he's a billionaire, bought the island in the Caribbean, called it Pedophile Island. I, mm -hmm. I guess they, some of them feel untouchable, right? 
Absolutely. And I mean, we, his case is so glaringly about the, um, the leniency um, and, and the lack of our society really to take a strong approach to protect um, vulnerable children. Are we making progress? Well, I, I think that slowly we're making progress. I think, you know, uh, we're talking more about it. Unfortunately, as you mentioned previously, we're talking about it because more and more um, we're seeing stories in, in various ways come to the forefront through news. Um, and so it's an ongoing issue that is certainly uh, brought forward that we can't ignore. I remember doing a program where uh, a, a youth sports coach was involved, and he was the one who was uh, criminally charged. And he had groomed not only the child that he decided he was going to sexually assault, but he groomed the parents. Right. Right. We actually see um, that quite often. Uh, with the children and adolescents that we serve, many of the offenders of children are people in um, situations that are very close, have easy access to the children, whether that's sports coaches or um, step family members or um, oftentimes single parents who uh, are, are meeting a potential partner who um, is an offender. So it's, it's really not uncommon that um, offenders take time to uh, groom and and it's a very methodical, unfortunate um, situation. Well, it's devastating. Yes. It's absolutely devastating. I, I keep looking at that number, uh, and it, this, is, this is one aspect of the, of the crisis, because that's what it is. Two million children around the world, two million at least, um, are engaged in some way, involuntarily, in commercial as in financial transactions, sexual exploitation. Two million. Absolutely. And, and I really believe those numbers are very, very low um, compared with what is actually happening. And I think the um, Jeffrey Epstein case, you know, highlights that, you know, offenders can come from various um, socioeconomic uh, groups. We often think about another myth is that it's sort of the, you know, um, dirty old man syndrome. And, and, you know, that's not necessarily the case. It's mm -hmm. very difficult to pick out someone who's offending. And I'm not saying this to, you know, frighten or put fear um, into the mind of other people, but it is important to be very aware and mindful about um, you know, parents making decisions about how they're going to or where or who they're going to leave their children with. Um, and we have a Prevent It program that's free of charge. It's an online program, and we have volunteers from across Canada who actually teach um, within all communities um, how to prevent child sexual okay. abuse. I would so, highly recommend it. Great. So go to littlewarriors.ca, littlewarriors.ca, whatever your age. 
go to littlewarriors.ca and if you're being sexually abused and you're a child or young person, don't stop talking about it until somebody really listens to you and takes you seriously. Dr. Polson, thank you very much for taking the time. It was good to speak to you. Very important. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Dr. Wanda Polson. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, today, we're told, um, apprehending and uh, beginning the process to remove from the United States to deport individuals the courts have uh, have declared are deportable or should be deported. They're in the United States illegally, and they may be posing a threat in the U.S. It's an extremely controversial issue where the Democrats and uh, the Republicans at each other's throats and Congress over this. Our good friend John Zogby joins us. Always great to have John on the program because he's a voice of... You're always calm, John, and I appreciate that. Um, founder of the Zogby Poll, op-ed writer for major U.S. publications and opinion guests on national television networks. His books include The Way We'll Be, uh, the Zogby Report on the Transformation of the American Dream, and We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes and the Tribal Analytics in 21st Century America. How are you, John? Good. How are you? Not so calm, though, but I'm okay. You're not calm? Well, you said I'm always calm. Uh, th- this is a very troubling issue that you're leading. Yeah, well, so let's talk about this. It, yeah. it, it, it's about illegal immigration. Is it about illegal immigration, or is it about politics and do we do we do we look at the United States and Washington separately when we raise that issue a very good question let me parse it um, the issue of illegal immigrants undocumented workers whatever we want to call them has been a political issue now for uh, the worst part of two decades um, and now there of course is someone in the White House who got to the White House by exploiting uh, that issue. Uh, where is the American public opinion? It's split. Uh, these days, it's for deporting, um, you know, it, it, certainly those who um, are deemed a, a criminal threat. But the issue is one of intensity. You know, where's the intensity right now on the issue is with Donald Trump. That's a fleeting sort of thing, though. It's like abortion and guns. The intensity level on either side usually is the one that dominates the, you know, the, the time frame. At the moment, though, uh, the, the president has the wind uh, at, you know, at his back. However, 
Um, we haven't seen any roundups just yet as of this moment, but if you know the, the the press has any access, if there are any video cams of of raids of arrests, uh, I, I'm actually sure that American public opinion will shift uh, on, uh, on on the issue. So we have state governments that have gotten involved, mm-hmm. and local governments have gotten involved. And uh, local governments have municipal governments, in some cases, have ordered local police not to cooperate with federal ICE agents. That just muddies the waters for people, doesn't it? For the average observer who says, I want a safe country, I want my borders properly uh, enforced, I want entry and exit from the United States done according to law. Once you have, uh, once the issue becomes a bit of a, or more than a bit, of a political football, which I think is happening, it muddies the waters for everybody. Yeah, it it sure does. And again, let me parse it because, you know, on on one hand, uh, ICE agents, uh, 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 law enforcement, federal law enforcement uh, uh, on the borders, they don't have the person power to to do these raids. They need, like most federal laws, they they need local cooperation. Um, that's where the that's where the person power comes from and so if you've got whole cities whole police forces whole states in some instances saying we're just not going to cooperate that muddies the waters in and of itself because it makes the federal government then look inept um the the other piece of it is like wars uh, and I, I'm sure that Canadians are like Americans. If you're going to go to war, go in, win it, get out. Uh, for those on a more conservative level, uh, the sense could be, hey, we're just opening up a can of worms here. You know, just like a, you know, the call for deporting 11 million undocumented workers. Oh, come on. I, I mean, how do you process that? You know, how do you, how do you get that job done? Even... Uh, even if you're for it. Uh, that's about 5% of the national population of the United States, is it not? Just about, yeah. Um, and, you know, anyone who's read about or experienced Immigration Naturalization Service, one of the most preposterous examples, you know, with all respect to good people who are trying to do their job, you know, the, the ringleader of the 9-11 attacks was Mohammed Atta, he got his green card processed two and a half years after 9/11. That's uh, I, mean, I can't even I can't even uh, I can't even work that out. <laughs> I don't know, John. But you can't have people blatantly ignoring immigration rules and entering entering a nation. What that does that harms immigrants who lawfully are going through the process of of entering a country. Because it creates for them potentially uh, sort of a, a negative view of them. I, I think it, I think it's just a it's just a damn mess. The it whole is, thing is and a it, mess. it's been begging now for at least two decades uh, for some kind of comprehensive reform. So what's uh, necessary? What would you say is necessary? You have well, for starters, we we need legal immigrants. Right. We need them on every level of our economy. Um, and so limiting the total number of legal immigrants is, is itself a problem. Um, we are in this country at full employment 
right now, and employers are begging for work. And again, at every level, we need entrepreneurs as well, and there's been a serious limitation now on what we call uh, B-1 and H-1 visas, those with special kinds of um, you know, technology skills or entrepreneurial skills to, to come in to the country. Thirdly, we're splitting families. Um, we, you know, there used to be a priority for you know immediate family of those who have been um, who have gotten their citizenship to come in. You know, that's that's pretty much been been broken. Um, and so the, there are these kinds of reforms, and then you can begin to focus on. Well, you, you need to deal with the constitutional rights and a path to citizenship for what we call the dreamers. Those are the children of uh, illegal immigrants or undocumented workers who are, are, should be afforded all the rights of, of U.S. citizenship. Um, and at this point in time, the, that has not been uh, the, uh, uh, Barack Obama's uh, executive order, because he couldn't get it through Congress to protect Dreamers uh, has been uh, countermanded by by President Trump. So, I mean, this is there are details here that need to be worked out, and there doesn't seem to be a will to come to an agreement. You know, but even uh, if I just look at the last twenty plus years of the immigration issue in the United States, I remember Bill Clinton speaking loudly about you can't have people just coming across the border, we're oh. going to stop this, we're going to close the door, we're going to send them back. I had I remember Barack Obama saying similar things, and they mm -hmm. didn't he deport four million people? Was that, uh, he did. Okay, he so that's deport, not a number he that... He deported uh, uh, many more than Trump, in fact, yeah. So is it is it just that they're playing politics with it? Yeah, all right. I mean, look, on the face of it, no one likes those who don't obey by uh, the rules. Right. Uh, those who break the rules. Okay, yep. that's a legitimate argument. And illegal aliens um, are are an issue. But again, there's a process issue here. I, I mean, how do you deport 11 million? All right, so you don't. So now, federal government is then giving a pass to 11 million people. The devil then is in the details, which ones get a pass, which ones don't. You were talking about muddying up the waters. Uh, it's confusing. But then at the same time, Bill Clinton um, was the rule breaker in chief when he was president of the United States. And just so that I can show my bipartisanship here, you've got the ultimate bar lowerer and uh, disruptor and break all the rules in chief sitting in the White House right now. There's a Democrat and there's a Republican. In between, you had a president who went to war and lied about it. So, uh, you know, what's the average person to do here? Leadership vacuum. Oh, a little bit. John, it's always good talking to you. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't spoil your day. Oh, no. <laughs> no, there's plenty to do that, Roy. You're, you're a breath of fresh air. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, my friend. Take care. Take care. At the John Zogby on Twitter, at the John Zogby, and it's the Zogby Poll. And uh, his most recent book is We Are Many, We Are One, Neo-Tribes, and the Tribal Analytics in 21st Century America.
animals. Okay, there's such a major part of our lives, and uh, it's really only been weeks since my two dogs died, within three weeks of each other. And you know that story. Uh, if you don't, one of my little buddies was uh, he was just very old, and he'd become blind and deaf and was falling a lot and just wasn't able to get any quality out of his life. So I spoke with a veterinarian, and, and we decided that the best thing to do was to put him to sleep, euthanize him. So it was a, such a horrible thing to do, and if you've gone through it, you know. And then immediately afterward, the other one, little Yorkie, had a rash on his skin and tried to get that fixed, and it didn't go away. And so within days, they sent me to a dermatologist and found that he had a very serious and rapidly advancing case of skin cancer. And so um, he was in really bad shape so fast, and so had to have him put to sleep. So then, you know, you go home, and what do you go home to? Two empty dog dishes? a couple of uh, harnesses and, and leashes, and that's it. So I get asked a lot, have you replaced your dogs yet? In fact, I was at the grocery store, was it day before yesterday? And uh, at the checkout, and the lady behind me said, Mr. Green, uh, sorry to hear about your dogs. Uh, do you have a new dog yet? And I, I don't know who she was, but very much appreciated her kindness, and I... I don't have a new dog yet. I'm seriously, seriously thinking about it. And so I see emails from listeners saying, I'm in the same position. I, how do you decide when, when to get a new dog? And I've seen that several times. So I thought I'd call my good friend, Dr. Stanley Corrin, University of British Columbia psychology professor, neuropsychological researcher, and writer. This is now on the human side, but then on the other side, on the dog side, he's a writer on the intelligence, mental abilities, and history of dogs. Dr. Corrin's best-selling international books about dogs include my favorite, Born to Bark, because I had one of those, and Why We Love the Dogs We Do, The Intelligence of Dogs as well, and most recently, God's Ghosts and Black Dogs. Dr. Corrin also has a a blog on Psychology Today's website. Stan, thank you very much for taking the time, and I wasn't going to bother you, but uh, I need to know what to do and when to do it, and apparently so do other people. So <laughs> we've, we've lost our dogs. We have the leashes. We have the collars. What do we do? Well, I'm a firm believer in do it now. Um, uh, one of the things which I've always done is I've always tried to have uh, at least two dogs in the house. Uh, spaced out by uh, five years and that way when one of the dogs dies I don't have to grieve alone and also I don't have an empty house but you know God has his own sense of humor so you know I had a situation very much like yours uh, I had a, uh, uh, a Nova Scotia duck calling retriever who had uh, reached the ripe old age of almost 16 and he died and then within six weeks I lost my beagle and so all of a sudden you know I had this empty house um, and uh, you know I, I'm a firm believer that you um, uh, should at least start looking um, you know the the act of looking gives you sort of a bridge sort mm -hmm. of a psychological bridge um, because you know that that companionship is coming down the line. 
And um, so, you know, uh, if, if you're uh, someone who likes to adopt dogs uh, from a shelter, uh, then what, uh, you know, I tend to do to recommend is that uh, uh, you go to the shelter, you know, once a week and that sort of thing so that the people there get to know that you are looking for a dog and you tell them what sort of thing you're looking for. And if one of those walks into the door, then, you know, you've got first crack at it. And um, and that gives you the feeling that at least you're moving forward on it. Mm-hmm. If, if you buy dogs from breeders, uh, which I tend to do, um, you know, it's very often the matter of, of finding out uh, which breeders are going to have puppies on the ground mm-hmm. uh, so you can go and look at them. Or, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if you're at a t- playing the long game, so to speak, um, you know, uh, find out about the size and dams that are going to be mated um, and uh, you know uh, put in your request that you would like a puppy Stan is there a wrong time to do to to, to get a dog I mean I know you said don't wait your philosophy is don't wait but is there is there a wrong time or is there a wrong motivation like I don't want to, I never when I talk to people about this I say I'm not I'm not looking to replace my two dogs who died I'm looking to be able to bring another dog into my life on that dog's terms and mine. Oh yeah, I mean y- your attitude is is the correct one. I mean, uh, you. N- I mean, none of my dogs ever replaced any of my other dogs. You know, it's it's it's. You know, I lost a family member and uh, mm-hmm. and I gained another. You know, and that one is very different. And I usually try to avoid getting the same breed of dog so that I'm not making comparisons. You don't have expectations, yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. And uh, but the wrong time to get um, the dog is if there's if there's major chaos going on in your life. So you know, if you've got if you're dealing with an illness or you know some major family crisis or that sort of thing, that's the wrong time to get a dog. Um, because you're not going to have the, the, the time to sort of uh, bond with a dog and you're not going to have the attentional reserves in order to, uh, uh, you know, pay attention to what's going on. So let me, let me ask you this. Let's say I, I don't want to get a puppy um, because I, I, don't have, I, I, don't have the, I don't have the time to, to, fair, to, to be fair to the puppy. I wouldn't have the time to invest in the puppy to, yep. to train it and train it up and so I'm looking for an adult dog um, a, a, more, a mature dog that's going to fit into my life fairly easily I know there could be some accommodations we have to make for one another as other people listening to the program understand as well so when you're looking for an adult dog does it change the parameters at all what do you I mean did you, did you I don't. I want to just look at a dog and fall in love with it, and take it home, and then the two of us are just not compatible. You know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, it's it's uh, there's an age thing in this. I mean, uh, the dogs are mine. <laughs> All right. Well, when you, know, I hear you, I hear you. When you get older. Um, uh, <laughs> And, and I'm not saying you're past your best before date. <laughs> Others um, have. Uh, um, very often the idea of, of the hassle of housebreaking and that sort of thing is, is a bother. I mean, the same, it, this, this happened to my parents. My parents always had standard schnauzers, which are just basically, you know, oversized terriers. And right. a lot of work, especially when they're young. 
and uh, when their <clears throat> last schnauzer died, um, you know, they just didn't feel that they had the emotional reserves uh, to to you know bring another one in, mm -hmm. and so I went and got them a seven-year-old uh, uh, Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Uh, which, you know, completely housebroken and, you know, basic obedience training all built into her. And and I gave them to, to, to my parents, and they had five years of, you know, wonderful, loving dog. Let me, uh, Stan, let me just get a caller on here. I just want to see what, how people are doing with, uh, with, uh, with, with their challenges and... And, and and replacing dogs, or not replacing, I don't like that word. Uh, Karen is in Burlington, Ontario. Hi, Karen. Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great. Thank you for the call. Go ahead, please. My condolences on the loss of your pet. Thank you. They're my Very friends, sad. my family. My, they're, my, yeah. they're my buddies. I just wanted to say that I rescued a Jack Russell Terrier at a year old in Binbrook a number of years ago. And I had him for 12 years, and he was a beautiful dog. He was just my shadow. And he got very sick all of a sudden. And it still brings tears to my eyes, but he got sick all of a sudden, and within about a month and a half, I had to have him put down. Mm -hmm. So I really missed the fact that I had a dog. I mean, I didn't even want to come home because I didn't have a dog to meet me at the gotcha. door. Understand. Uh, and my cat actually took over that position. Do you have you have you do you have a new dog new dog I in your do, life? I do actually. Uh -huh. So what I was going to say is, I mourned a bit for a good six months, and I decided I would start looking for another rescue. Uh huh. And it took me a long time because I find some of the rescues in Ontario, anyway, are very, very difficult to deal with, to be honest. I'm glad you said that because I just responded to a tweet. And Stan, let me bring you in on this. I, I've checked with rescue organizations. I love what they do. I think they're marvelous, marvelous, marvelous people who do a great job in, in, in protecting dogs that need protection and need, and, and need to be rehomed. But my God, it takes forever to, to get through all the questions. Um, Stan, what do you say anyway, to that? I found it very inundating. Yeah. Um, well, hold on a second, Karen. Stan, what do you say to that, uh, the, the, this, this whole issue? Of, you know, rescue organizations, God love them. They're wonderful. But I want to get a dog. I don't want to spend weeks and weeks answering questions. Well, uh, the... Uh... Karen, thank you for the call. I'm sorry, we've got a little bit of interference here. Go ahead, Stan. Um, actually, uh, uh, I... You have to understand their their motivation is good. I mean, they're looking for a forever home for the dog, um, but uh, but sometimes they go overboard, and especially you know if you're if you're a bit older. I mean, you know they get they get panicky sometimes about um, giving dogs to to people who they consider to be seniors. Um, there are there are se several alternate ways uh, to go about this. Uh, one of them is if you know what breed of dog you're interested in, you can contact a breeder. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, very often they have dogs that they have have used, uh, you know, to to produce litters and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, and generally speaking, when the dog gets to be about seven years of age, they stop breeding them. And um, and at that point in time, they're looking for a place to place the dogs, and they've been well kept and you know and loved and that sort of thing. Sure. So, um, so that's one way to go. It's an alternate way of going. Um, 
And uh, another way is there is, instead of going through the, the SPCA or the Humane Society, there are breed rescue organizations. So right, for, right. So, for example, if I was interested in a Kerry Blue Terrier, right. uh, you know, I, I could uh, uh, look up on the web and, and find the uh, Kerry Blue Rescue uh, Organization in my area. I got, I got you, Stan. I only have two minutes. I want to get one caller on in, from Edmonton because she has a question to ask, and I think it's a good question. Ida in Edmonton, go ahead, please, for Dr. Corrin. Roy, thank you so so very much, and Dr. Corin. I have uh, three, and I'm so sorry, Roy. I can't even imagine. Um, I have three large dogs: a German Shepherd, a Husky, and an 80-pound Meth Lab rescue. And we lost our little West Highland Terrier in January. And I'm looking at getting another one because you really miss that terrier energy in your house. But I'm just wondering how introducing a Westie pup to three older, larger breeds would work for me because I haven't had a pup in a long time. And Stan, I've got 45 seconds for an answer from uh, The answer here is that it's probably easier to put to bring a pup in uh, than a mature dog because uh, they still have the scent about them, the special pheromones, and that will protect them from any aggression from the other dogs. Good stuff. Oh, Four dogs. I envy you, Ida. I envy you. <laughs> it's a lively household. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Thank you for the call. Thanks. Thank you so much. Take good care. It's time. I stand when you know it's time, it's time. It's time. And when you get yours, I want you to send me a photo. Oh, I will. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I, I don't mean to disrespect any rescue organizations. I've had dogs from rescue organizations, and, and they've turned out to be great dogs. But please... Talk to the person. <laughs> the, the, the questionnaires are just really all-encompassing. They just go on and on and on and on and on. And I just don't have the time for it. That's why I say visit, you know, the Humane Society. Right. They get to know you. Yeah. And uh, um, somehow or another, when you are actually a person to them rather than a scroll on a questionnaire, you get better surface. Yeah. Thank you, Stan. Always great talking to you. You take care. Dr. Stanley Corrin from the University of British Columbia. You can uh, read his blog in psychologytoday.com and uh, his books, which are internationally renowned, and he's one of the world's top dog show judges. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.